Let me invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 15. As this morning we finish our summer series with the I Am Statements of Jesus, the last one of these I Am the Vine that Jesus has given us. I hope you've enjoyed as we've done this, as Camper and I have squeezed in this series in between all of our uh, being blessed with all of our guests uh, this summer, Uh, but we truly are a blessed church to have a number of very capable teachers that can feed us each week. Uh, But this series is uh, an important one to focus our attention on the identity of Christ and who we are in Jesus. Just so that you are aware, again, next Sunday we begin our fall series. We'll go back to John chapter 1 and begin uh, working our way through there verse by verse for however long that will take us. Uh, But uh, so uh, we will really get to know this book. But this morning, John 15, our text, our focus text, our our primary text is John 15, 1. But for the sake of understanding and context, we'll be reading verses 1 through 11. So now hear the word of God. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full of the word of the Lord. Let's go to our God in prayer that he would speak, and we would not rest on our own abilities, but that his spirit would be at work within us. Father, we do come with thanksgiving for the words that you have recorded, as they not only point us to Jesus and help us to understand who he is, but are filled with promise of the life that comes in him. Pray that We pray, Lord, that you would be at work in our, us now, that our minds would grasp and our hearts would be shaped, that we would not only understand, but we would therefore be changed to become more like Christ, and so therefore bring you pleasure and glory. We pray all of this in the name of Christ, who is the Word incarnated, and the one who dwells within those who believe. For his glory. Amen. This morning I'd like to begin at the end. In other words, with the last words that Jesus gives us in uh, this passage that we read uh, this morning. In verse 11, he says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. In other words, what Jesus is declaring, that everything that he had spoken up to that point, everything that we read from verses 1 through 10, have a specific purpose in mind. 
And that purpose is that he's given us those words in order that his joy might be in you and that our joy might be full. Now, fullness of joy, you don't have to sell me. I'm ready to sign up. I'm all in favor of that. If somebody wants to give me a joy and give me an offer to help me understand how I'm going to experience even more and more joy, I'm there. I'm ready to go. This is especially true when we consider the nature of the joy that Jesus is talking about. And it's not just this fleeting, momentary thing that periodically will bring a smile to your face. But Peter, who was there, years later, reflecting on not only Jesus' teaching here, but the whole of his life and the promise of the joy that is found in Christ and dwells within those who believe in Christ, he makes this declaration to other believers. Though you don't see him, you love him. And even though you don't, even though that you don't see him, you believe in him, and you are receiving the goal of your faith. Consequently, you have a joy that is unspeakable and inexplicable and glorious. In other words, what Peter had come to understand is the joy that Jesus is promising to his followers in verses one through ten is of such a nature that while we can kind of describe it, we never do justice in this description. It's just inexplicable. And even, it doesn't even make sense to some people who have not experienced it. But those who have experienced have an idea of what Peter is talking about. And though it's difficult to put into words, it is not difficult to transfer. Those who have experienced Christ have all experienced it. So this is the promise that Jesus is making. In these words, he's saying, this is the reason that I'm teaching you, that I'm telling you this story, this, this illustration, so that you will have fullness of joy. Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves is this, is how is it that we get that joy? I mean, there's the promise, but how is it that we benefit from it? And my observation, and even my own experience, tells me that our joy is often in direct proportion to the status of our relationships. In other words, no matter what's going on in our lives, if the relationships that are closest to us and are most important to us, whether that's our, our spouse, our children, our parents, those who love us, or whether it's a boss, a professor, or an employee, if all of those relationships are going well, we tend to feel not just a peace and a comfort, but there is a joy, a, a characteristic within our life. But if any of those significant relationships are out of balance or that we are in conflict, regardless of anything else that may be going on in our lives that is good, we find it difficult to really declare or to feel joy in our lives until those relationships are back on a solid status. But it's also important to recognize that the basis of our joy in relationship is not just the relationship that we have with one another or the people that are in our lives, but most foundationally is joy comes when the most important relationship that we have is also in right balance, and that's our relationship with God. We also need to understand that whether or not we believe in God, whether we are conscious of God, you may not even believe that God is there, but it doesn't really matter. Everyone is in relationship to God in one way or another. Our belief in him doesn't establish him, and we relate to him simply because he is there. We wouldn't in this life have somebody who is a child who is yet to understand the, the laws of gravity, therefore not feeling any belief in them, 
think that therefore they are immune to them, and so therefore they can climb the highest tree that they would like without any danger. You don't have to believe in the laws of gravity. In fact, if you reject the laws of gravity, you're probably most likely to find yourself lacking joy as you fall and feel the weight of the law of gravity upon you. During the summertime, we might experience it in another way. You don't have to be aware of ultraviolet rays that are coming from the sun. In fact, sometimes the most dangerous days for people who are out and who are inexperienced sunbathers would be the days that are somewhat overcast and somewhat hazy because you're not feeling the warmth and the heat and you're not seeing the sun, and so therefore we kid ourselves and assume this is not a big deal. No need for any real sunscreen today. And yet, if you are a skier or a beachgoer, you know that it's those kinds of days when the sun is there and the ultraviolet rays are still coming through, even though you are not believing in them, that we find ourselves the most burned and therefore the most pained. It's vitally important that we understand that whether we are conscious of God, even if we don't believe in God, we are in relation to him. The question is not whether we relate to him, it's how are we relating to him and what is the nature of the relationship that we have with God that makes a difference. And it also is what Jesus is hinting to in this particular passage. Though it's very subtle, Jesus is telling us about the importance of the relationship in order for us to experience the joy that he is promising here. And he borrows language from the world of grape farming in order to make his point. The word is um, viticulture, which is a subset of horticulture which itself is a subset of agriculture. That's pretty much all I know. That's what I just wanted to impress you with the <laughs> words here. The only other thing I know about grape growing is you can't have grape jelly if you don't have grapes. So um, you need grapes for grape jelly. You need grapes for, um, for, uh, for wine. But apparently you don't need grapes for grapefruit. But other than that, other than this, <laughs> I don't know a whole lot, but Jesus is entering into that world, borrowing this language. It's possible the reason he did that is because he and his disciples, they had just finished with the, uh, the Last Supper. And while the text is not clear about this, many scholars believe they have left the upper room. They have not yet reached their destination, so therefore they're walking the past, walking the fields. And plentiful in that region were the fields that were vineyards, and so wine. And so the disciples would have certainly been very familiar, familiar scene. And it's quite possible he has an object lesson, lesson that he is bringing out to them, even as he's speaking to them, and he tells them this illustration. I am the vine, you are the branches, and then ultimately here's how we find uh, our joy. And it's found in the relationship between the, the vine, the branches, and the, the vineyard owner, the vine dresser. Now, as we look at this passage today, we're going to answer three overarching questions. That's how we're going to work our way through it. The first question that we'll be answering is this. What is the essence of these relationships? The second question that we'll be asking is this. How is fruit cultivated in these relationships? And the last question we will ask is, what difference does it all make, or what difference does it make anyway? And so we'll begin with this question is, what is the essence of these relationships? And Jesus doesn't assume that we are experts in the field of viticulture or in the field of the spiritual life in the kingdom of God. And so what he does is he begins essentially with a playbill, with a cast of characters. This is the first thing he demonstrates to us in this passage. 
that essentially tells us, in the role of the vine this morning, Jesus himself. In the, vol- in the role of the branches, you and me. Really in the role of the branches, people everywhere, as, as we will see. And in the role of the vineyard owner, the vine dresser, is God the Father. Jesus lays out the different parts, the different roles that are played in the process that leads towards the joy that he is promising. But an interesting thing that he does here as he is giving us this cast of characters, Jesus doesn't simply say that he's playing the role of uh, of the vine. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And that's important because if he's declaring himself to be a true vine, we should get the sense that now he's making a comparison. There is a contrast to something else. Apparently, people were considering something else to be a vine, and it's been found lacking. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm the real deal. I am the true vine. I am the real vine. Now, this statement would have certainly caught the attention of his disciples, not only because of the contrast that he was offering, but because it was different than something that they had heard all of their lives. Throughout most of the Old Testament, one of the common names for Israel is God's vine. God's people were his vine. He planted that vine. He expected fruit to come from that vine. Isaiah 5 is very clear about the relationship that God has with the vine. The Lord writes this, My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded only wild grapes or sour grapes. What more was there for me to do in my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and and it shall be uh, devoured. I will break down its wall. And then he goes on in verse 7, he says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are the pleasant planting. And he looked out for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. See, all through the Old Testament, Israel was called to be the vine, but it only produced sour fruit. God wanted good fruit from it, and he wanted something that was good, but he got just the opposite of that. And so the disciples would have certainly understood The vine would have been the people of God, the group within which they grew. And Jesus here is now saying, I am the vine. And you're the branches. That's the relationship. But while that definition of the roles is important, that's not the essence of it. Because we see in verse 8, the purpose of the relationships. In verse 8, we're told, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And see, we see throughout this is that while each role is interacting, each has a part, there is an objective, and that objective is that we, the branches, will bear fruit that brings pleasure and glory to the one who is the owner of the vineyard. Now, the implication for all of us is very simply this. Every one of us needs to be looking at our lives on a regular basis and inspecting our lives for fruit to see whether there's fruit. Jesus is very serious about this. He tells real consequences for whether there's fruit or whether there's lack of fruit. So it's important that we all be inspectors of our own lives 
for whether or not there is fruit. Now, that might be easy, easily understood, but what is a little bit more difficult for us is this. What kind of fruit are we supposed to be looking for? Or what does this fruit look like? I mean, if we don't even know what we're looking for, then how would we know if it is there? Or how do we avoid mistaking something else for being a fruit? Well, if you've grown up in an evangelical church or were part of certain parachurches and, and disciple through them, the first thing that may come to your mind is that of evangelism. Conversions through your sharing of the gospel with them. Both biblically and through a lot of evangelical tradition, this is known as the fruit of our labors, and it certainly is appropriate and biblical. The Apostle Paul speaks of it this way when he's talking about the fact that the gospel itself has been bearing fruit all over ever since it was declared. And what he means by that is once the gospel was declared in different places, that seed was planted, even in his absence, people had heard it and believed it and had passed from death into life, becoming followers of Jesus Christ. And all of those who now are followers of Christ, Paul's referring to as the evidence, the fruit of this gospel power. He also says elsewhere that he's coming for a visit in order that he might gain fruit from the people that he had invested in, planted the gospel, and he wanted to gain fruit. What he means by that is he wants to see how the gospel has continued to be at work and that more and more people have come to faith in Jesus Christ because of that gospel seed. And so there is a sense in which what Jesus is saying is we need to invest our, invest our lives in such a way and look to see whether there is fruit from our labors in the ministry of evangelism, both individually and corporately as a church. But I think more immediately we need to understand this. Well, that is a legitimate aspect, and that certainly is appropriate to be considered fruit. More in line with what Jesus has in mind here is not the fruit of conversions from uh, evangelism, but the character of Christ that is born in the lives of those who belong to him, which incidentally is the most fertile ground to see the fruit of conversion in the lives of the people whom you are around. Because Paul, again, as he's writing to the church, in Galatia, he calls that character of Christ in our lives the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5.22 and 5.23, Paul writes this, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And so what Jesus is telling us that as we belong to him, the nature of the relationships is such as that the vine dresser is expecting to see fruit through the branches that are connected to the vine, to Christ, those who are in him. That not only should there become more fruit that is tangible, but there should be evidence of Christ's life bearing itself in characteristics that are also called fruit. In reality, it's nothing short of the life of Christ becoming more and more evident in the life of those who are his followers. And Jesus is saying this is the essence of these relationships. Each one has a role to play, and this is the goal, the objective, this is the purpose of the relationship, is that God is glorified and we bear much fruit that God not only delights in, but also declares that God is at work within us. But then the question is, how is it that this kind of fruit is cultivated? We know that it's supposed to be there. We've experienced it. We've seen it. 
But what is the spiritual process by which fruit is born? And Jesus tells us in this passage that the vine dresser, who is God the Father, is actively involved in this process by pruning those that belong to him. We see in verse 2, every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. In other words, those who are demonstrating the reality that they're connected, we might even say, simply put, those who seem to be the best, God then prunes, which is also what is done in viticulture, in the, in the harvesting of grapes. That's how the best grapes and the best vineyards are born, is the people that know what they're doing, see what is the most fruitful and is producing the best grapes, and they cut and they maneuver in such a way that it is able to produce more and more fruit. And what Jesus is saying here is this is the way that, that God works, is that he prunes. And the pruning that he's talking about here is really simply a metaphor for spiritual discipline or discipline that God is involved in. The writer of Hebrews talks about that in a way that is a little bit more direct. Because in Hebrews 12, we are told this. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so the writer of Hebrews explains it in, in clear language that all of us have experienced is that when we're going through a process of being pruned or being disciplined, nobody likes it. It always seems painful. And the whole imagery of pruning would certainly make that because pruning is cutting. Cutting is painful. But it's painful for a time is what the writer is telling us. But there is a purpose behind it that brings greater joy than we could have imagined and maybe even than we want. But God loves us in such a way that this is what he is doing. He is being at work cultivating us through discipline and through pruning because he has promised to do more in you than you would ask or than you could even imagine. We see this theme picked up in the writings of C.S. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia. In the Chronicles of Narnia, we meet a character named Eustace Scrub. And when Eustace is introduced to us in the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Lewis introduces them with memorable words. He says this, There once was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> if you've read the story or if you read the story, you find that Eustace is an incredibly disagreeable, bratty kid. When we meet him, he's about 10 years old. He's totally self-absorbed, thinking of himself as self-important. He is whining and sniveling, and he's the reason people don't keep the nursery or volunteer for teaching Sunday school. <laughs> As the story goes on, Eustace finds himself one night falling asleep on a, on a dragon's lair, only to find in the morning when he awoke that he had been transformed into a dragon. 
the imagery here is that what he was on the inside, now he was physically. Not recognized by the people who knew him. They just assumed he was a dragon. They had tolerated him before, despite the fact that he was like a dragon because he was human. But now that he was a dragon, they didn't recognize him. They treated it as you would expect somebody to be treated when they are a dragon. And as the story there unfolds, he's broken and saddened and wishing that he could go back into the form which God had originally created him. And then he tells something that is interesting. He meets up with Edmund, who is one of the keys of the story. And he says, I'm not going to tell you how I became. They, they did find out that he was a dragon, and now all of a sudden he is a, as a boy again. But he's still different. And he said, I'm not going to tell you until I can tell everybody. But when he starts telling the story, here's what he says. I looked up and saw the very last thing I expected, a huge lion coming slowly towards me. It was Aslan, who was the Christ figure in this story. And one peculiar thing was that there was no moon that, uh, late, uh, last night, but there was moonlight where the lion was. So it came nearer and nearer, and I was terribly afraid of it. You may think that being a dragon, I could have knocked any lion out easily enough, but it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it. Well, it came close, and it looked me straight into the eye, and I shut my eyes tight, but it wasn't any good because he called me to follow it. And then as he was following the lion, still in the nature of the dragon, afraid and yet longing, the lion leads him to this beautiful pond that was crystal and he wanted to swim in it but the lion said that you need to become clean first you can't get in there until you have been cleaned up you need to clean yourself up and so wanting to get in there Eustace began scratching himself and said the scales began to fall off but then I noticed that as the scales began to fall off that underneath those scales were other scales and I would scratch and I would scratch and they would fall off, but it didn't change the nature that I was a dragon. It didn't seem to be anything that I was able to do until the lion himself speaks to him and it says, you're going to have to let me do it. You're going to have to let me undress you. And Eustace says this, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked a scab off a sore place, it hurt like a bilio. You know, I don't know what that means, I'm British, I guess. <laughs> but it is fun to see it coming off anyway, isn't it? Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. In other words, what had been taken off now, as opposed to the scales that had fallen off. And there was I, as smooth and as soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. He's speaking of humility. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I'd no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. 
And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all of the pain had gone from me. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. You'd think me simply phony if I told you how I felt. But after that, the lion took me out and he dressed me. Lewis is capturing here both what Jesus is teaching here and the whole essence of the gospel itself. You see, Eustace found himself in a nature that he wasn't created to be, and no matter how hard he tried to change himself and to scrape it away, he couldn't change himself because it was just too deeply embedded in him. And the only way that he was going to experience change is if Christ himself would do it. But when Christ did it for him, he cuts deep, and it wasn't lacking pain. There was something that made it bearable because he was actually becoming what he had hoped to be or even given up hope of becoming. But it was because of Christ who was stripping him, who was pruning him. And the end result was he was made something better than he had been before, but still sore, still tender. And at the end of this passage, it's interesting because we see the promise of the gospel fulfilled because now that he had been shed of his uncleanness and standing before it was the lion who dressed him and the promise of the gospel for all who believe is that while Christ is the one who will strip us of our sin he will robe us in his own righteousness and we stand before God on that basis not anything we do but what Christ himself does but in order for us to get the benefit of that process we have to be willing to endure or we have to endure and experience the pruning that God does but only for those that he loves some of us really need to hear this because when you experience difficulties and hardship, the first thing you do is wonder, why is God punishing me? And I'm prone to that as well. And I look for all the different issues. And I got plenty of them. And so I could get stuck on the issues as to why I would be experiencing punishing. But what Jesus is calling our attention to for the whole issue of pruning is it's not punishment. It is discipline. It is the pruning that God does for those he loves for a purpose to make you what you can't imagine that you are. And we need to understand that to be willing to endure the process. But this is the way God works. He prunes. And it's not just C.S. Lewis who understood this. John Newton, the great writer of the hymn Amazing Grace, had once been the slave trader and then turned pastor and tremendous writer. In a dark time of his own life, he writes a poem that has become a beautiful hymn. But I won't sing it for you because it wouldn't be quite so beautiful. <laughs> but I do want to read the poem to you because it is, it is a powerful illustration of what Jesus is telling us here about how fruit is cultivated. Newton says this, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, answered his prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost to drive me to despair. See, I hope that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more than this, with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this, I trembling cried? Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, 
I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ, from self and pride to set thee free, and break thy schemes of earthly joy, that thou might find your all in me. This is the reality of the way that God works. And so what Jesus is saying is this is how fruit is cultivated in our lives. It's not the way that we signed up for, for many of us. But we did when we trusted and were willing to embrace the call to follow him. The promise is not pain, but joy beyond our ability to speak. But it is for those who also do one other thing, not only endure the pruning. But as is evident toward the end of Newton's poem, is exactly what Jesus also declares to us in this passage. We see it in verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now that last start put almost makes no sense because there's an awful lot of things that we can do, right, without Jesus and apart from him. If you've ever seen me play golf, you would know that I can do that apart from Jesus. But the reality is we can preach and build churches apart from Jesus. We can raise families apart from Jesus. There is almost nothing that we can't do apart from Jesus, except that Jesus is saying, you can do nothing that will build fruit and nothing that will last apart from me. Now, I've never tried this before, but as I understand, if you cut the head off of a chicken, you can watch it dance. It doesn't mean it's alive or that it's healthy. And when we cut ourselves off from Christ, we can do all sorts of things thinking that we're performing, and yet, we're dead, and nothing will last from it. But Jesus says, but the one who abides in me is going to bear great fruit. Well, what does he mean to abide? Some translations say remain, and that's appropriate because there's a consistency and a constancy, but it seems to give the impression that the whole idea is that we just kind of sit here and do nothing. And the command here is an imperative. It is something that we are to do, that we are to be longing. We are intentionally to be connected and constantly being rooted in Christ. That while he has us, we are also seeking to be connected to him at the same time. There is an intensity and a will that is, is, preside, that is, is present here. It's an organic dynamic and relationship. And one of the ways in which we do that, the foundational thing, is that we need to understand our need to be connected to him. And that foundation then drives us to the very means by which we do. And Jesus has revealed a few of them here very subtly in the text. One of them that he says is uh, that we see in verse, uh, uh, verse 7. Um, if you abide in me, um, you can ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And he's talking about prayer. It's Prayer is the conversational aspect of a loving relationship. And so as we speak with God and we're praying and we are listening, that we are connecting and we are abiding in him. He doesn't just say simply through prayer, but he says, if my word dwells within you, and he's reminding us that if we're feeding on his word, not just through the sermons on a Sunday morning, but regularly reading and realizing God has recorded this and he is speaking to us. And then maybe not every time, but at times we become conscious that in a mystical way that there is the voice of God. 
But even if we're not conscious of it, it's still the voice of God who is speaking to us. And so as we are feeding on that, we are connecting. These are known as the means of grace that we partake in and that we are connected to him. We endeavor to do them. And in so doing, we are reminded that we are connecting with the one who has connected to us. Jesus does not bear much fruit. But Jesus says something else that's also important for us to understand because we see in verse 10. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And so Jesus says that there's an importance that we not only follow him, but we do what he tells us to do. We're not earning the abiding, but that's how we commit. When we make the commitment to say, I will live my life in the way that God has called me to live my life, then we are abiding in him according to Jesus' promise. It doesn't just happen. We make that commitment or we fall off. But Jesus is giving us very tangible ways and telling us this is what it means to abide. Seek, long, to continue to be connected. And as we are connected, there is the promise. Just as the branch that is connected to the vine that is a healthy vine is going to bear the fruit and the life of the vine, if we abide in him, the life of Christ will then be at work through us and become evident through the fruit that he is promising in our lives. But our last question is this, what difference does it make? And Jesus gives a very simple and yet stark contrast at the very beginning of this, going back to verse 2. There are two consequences based upon whether we are abiding or whether we are not. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Picking up again in verse 6, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. And the language that is here is the unmistakable imagery of being in the fires of hell. We are either in Christ or we are in danger of being cut off. Now again, when I said all people represent the branches, every one of them is at some point connected because God has created all people. But where there is no fruit, we're told that the one who is the owner of the vineyard cuts them off, throws them away, and ultimately throws them to burn. And we just need to be aware of that because hell is a very unpopular, understandably unpopular topic to such a point that some people become really popular and make a whole lot of money writing books to tell you it doesn't even exist. But we look at this passage and we have to ask ourselves, am I going to believe some guy who has a talk show on Oprah's network or Jesus? And I'll leave you with your choice. But the other consequence is this. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And what is the fruit that he has promised, that he is going to be evident, that he has in focus here? The fruit of joy that comes to those who abide in him, recognizing our need in him, and remember and remind ourselves consistently, Jesus declares, I am the vine and you are the branches, and whoever abides in me will bear great fruit, joy, And we know that because he has said, I have told you this so that my joy, my life will be in you and you can experience the full promise of joy. May we choose and celebrate that we can be in Christ as he is in us. 
and increasingly see the fruit of joy that Jesus promises.